Morning, everybody. Well, it's the first Sunday of the new year, and all of you are here. So what that means is you are on track to having a perfect attendance record at church in 2018. So congratulations to all of you. I'm not saying Jesus is going to love you more because of it. I'm just saying that you'll have a bigger mansion in heaven once you get there compared to everybody else. But before we move on, let me take a look back at 2017, and let me tell you the very elite and handful of people who actually showed up every Sunday in 2017, which is always just amazing to me. Like, I'm the pastor here. I don't show up every Sunday uh, in the year. In fact, I got, I've missed more Sundays last year than anyone else on staff. And so congratulations to Jen Paul, who was here more than anyone else on staff. But according to our records, which are fallible, these are the individuals who did not miss a single week last year in 2017. John and Georgie Tibbetts, Barb Barone, Don Burnett, Pat Davis, and Diana Newport did not miss a single week last year of church. Now, I would ask you to give them a hand, but here's what I also noticed. They all come to the 930 service. <laughs> so I had a sermon prepared, but I need to shift it now to something else because you all are slackers. And nobody in this room was like... Here are the individuals who missed one week last year, just one week. My grandmother, Meemaw, she missed one week, and I think it was the... Uh, she was at the casino until 4 in the morning drinking rum and cokes. It was a rough, rough night. It was hard to get to church. Jeff Hammett, Randy Templeton, and Paul Wilkin. Where'd Paul go? Oh, I saw Paul. Where's, where's Paul? Is he in the room? There he is, right in the middle. Look at his shirt. Isn't it great? That's a beautiful shirt you got on there, Paul. <laughs> Did we both get that from Mom? Did we get that from Mom? <laughs> That's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> Hey, call me next Sunday what you're wearing before we get here. Well, we missed two weeks, and uh, my dad protests. He says only one. But our records say Chuck Barrington was absent two weeks last year. Kim Clark, Jesse Vardaman missed just twice. Sarah Wilkin and Michelle Knopp, just two weeks last year. So that's, a, that's amazing to me. Uh, also, you'll note in your bulletin is an insert for groups. We begin sign-ups for groups. And often when you enter into a new year, you do so seeking transformation, maybe a different kind of life this year than last year, maybe some growth in terms of companionship or friendships in regard to life, and you're going to need it because what's going to happen is, like, when your teenager has a complete meltdown and you're truly at your wit's end, it is good to be surrounded by other people who can love you and encourage you and to give you wisdom and advice through that. Or when you lose your job and you're full of anxiety, it is good to be around other people who could support you in that and encourage you in that. Or even if you're living the best life you've ever lived and everything is going great, there's a possibility that in your success you could lose sight of priorities that you would hold on to in the new year and it is good to be surrounded by people who can help you in that. And group is a great place to be. So our groups here at Living Stones Church, they have an intentional start date, an intentional end date that allows you to make a commitment but to not be in perpetuity, meaning until death do us part. We have a variety of groups. They meet at different times of the week, have different formats, they have different topics of study, but they all have as their intent to help you in community move towards Jesus. And so take a look on that insert, maybe prayerfully consider joining a group. You could do so online or if you've downloaded the Living Stones Church app, you can sign up there. But I want to encourage you, if you do sign up, let me just say be committed to it. I know it's so easy to check a box. I just, like, I signed up. But if you're going to do that, I would just say to you, be uh, committed to it. I promise you, you will not regret it. And inner knowing that it is a commitment, not only to yourself and your growth, but also then to other people in the group who now look to you for your participation in their own encouragement, support, and growth. Dependability 
is still a great virtue. And we, listen, we're in the middle of the winter, right? These are winter group sessions, and I know, I, I totally get it. You get home from work, it's dark, you're hungry, right? You're tired. I mean, as soon as my bra comes off, I am not going back out again. I totally, I totally get it, right? You just want to stay home and relax. I understand that. But if you sign up, be, be committed to it. I'll, let me encourage you that to, uh, to take a look at our groups and pick one. They, they'll, they'll start the week of January 21st is when they're going to start. So you've got a couple weeks to find out. And the last thing uh, I have for you is we have what we're called the dating game. And this is not how to find a boyfriend girlfriend here at the Livingstones Church. What this is for is for those of you who've kind of been here for maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, what happens is you, you're trying to figure out, is this church for me? Like, are we going to go to the next step in regards to our relationship? But for you to make a good, healthy decision in that, you need to know about the Livingstones Church. Like, what is our heartbeat? Like, what's our mission and vision? What has God called us to? What will that look like for you? Like, how do you move into relationship and ministry and service? And so let me just encourage those of you who've been kind of here for maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, you should come to the dating game. We'll tell our story. Here's where God has been with us, what he's calling us to, how that might look for you in participation. I really do think you'll walk out with a much better picture of either, yeah, I think this church might be, oh, that doesn't mean we're getting married yet, but I mean, we're just we're going a little step further in our relationship, or you'll walk away and go, nope, time to find another church. That's okay. That happens too. Uh, but let me encourage you, the dating game, it will be after this service on January 21st. We'll meet in the community room, which is back in the LSC Kids. We're going to serve you pizza for lunch. So like, if you're like, man, I'm hungry, like just stay for pizza. And we also provide childcare if you need it. You can sign up either on the app or in the bulletin. There's a place to sign up for there. So we're going to launch a brand new series this morning entitled rising strong. And so as we do so, if we could just begin with prayer, that might be helpful to, to all of us. Let's just, let's just pray together as we get started. God, I'm going to ask that you allow us to get a glimpse of our true selves, not the one that we've convinced ourselves of or that we've postured ourselves to be for the sake of appearance, but our real and true selves. And in it, we might have a moment where we see clearly the fictitious story we're spinning for our own ego's sake a revelation maybe even of our own lies, not in a way that discourages us, but in a way that allows us a starting point to know that we are real, what we're really dealing with, a real and honest perspective of ourselves that gives us a tangible foundation to commit to real life change and transformation. And along with that, a glimpse to give us hope that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can rise above any lie or fraudulent story or false posturing that's keeping us in a place in life that's preventing us from true and abundant life, or that's sabotaging our ability to rise after we fall. We ask, as King David once said, that you would search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we start this series, I need to confess, I've stolen the title from somebody else. This is not my title, Rising Strong, and so I want to put a plug in for you to go out and purchase. Brene Brown is her name, her book entitled Rising Strong. It's just $12, both paperback and Kindle right now at Amazon. She is a research professor at the University of Houston. She spent the last 16 years studying courage, vulnerability, empathy, and shame, and she has a very popular TED Talk on vulnerability. Maybe some of you have seen it. If not, it is a must-see. You should just look her up on YouTube, uh, TED Talk on vulnerability. I think it will help you. But I've stolen her book title for this message series, and I've read her book, and it's fantastic. I think it will help you. Um, I'm hoping even some of the insights of the series might, you can see that's been influenced, but the sermons are not from her book. I say that for her reputation, not mine. I hope you get that, but I think that book will help you. So um, with that, uh, let, let me say something to you that's not profound, like you know this, but I, it'll be help us, help us as a reminder. 
Um, you have failed. And you are going to fail. And you should embrace this truth now, or you'll be overwhelmed by it when it happens. And so we're already just one week into the new year. And so let me just ask one week, and how are we doing our New Year's resolutions? All right, how are we doing? Woo, some of you are okay. All right, come on out with the rest of us. Like, and I'm a resolution guy, but I get this. Like, we kind of enter on December 31st, the first of the year, kind of with a, woohoo, 2018 is going to be my year, new year, new me, the whole bit. But do you know statistically how many people succeed in their resolutions? You know, you know what the statistics are? 8%. Did you know that? Only 8% of people who make resolutions by the end of the year will have succeeded in their resolutions. 80% of all New, year, new Year's resolutions are dead by February. 80%, which are sobering facts and statistics. But for those of you who feel like you really didn't get started or you've already failed in the first week, I don't want you to be discouraged. And let me tell you why. Let me help you out here. January 1st was on a Monday, right? And technically, January 1st is a holiday. You're still off of work usually. Kids are out of school. Bowl games are on all day. And you've got to eat snacks. When you're... So if you had any resolutions to diet in the new year, you cannot start on January 1st because it's still a holiday. The only time you can really start is on January 2nd, right? That just makes sense, right? We're all in agreement on that. But if you remember, what was January 2nd? This... What day of the week was January 2nd this week? Remember? You remember? Tuesday. And everybody knows you can't start a diet on Tuesday. <laughs> because the only biblical day of the week in which you can start a diet and to lose weight is what? Monday. So really, tomorrow is the first day of the year for all of you. So if you have failed already or didn't get a good start, don't worry about it. They really start tomorrow. Plus, you have a cold. So you don't really, it's okay. You're welcome. You see what I did there? What I just did was I do what everyone does in the midst of their failing. We spin a story or we excuse ourselves in a way that justifies our failing. There's always a reason. There's always a justification. There's always a cause, typically outside of myself, that explains my failing. And this story, this excuse, this reason, this justification typically absolves me of true wrongdoing. Or at the very least, it gives you sympathy and understanding for my behavior that allows my ego to be let off the hook. It can't really be me. I mean, like the core me, the real Sam Barrington. Because the real Sam Barrington would have to admit that he really just didn't want to. <laughs> like, he was just too lazy this week to put together a healthy menu and along with a grocery list and go to the store. All these, right? It's remodeling. Pfft, who can even do that? <laughs> Make healthy foods, go to the gym, get started on my New Year's resolutions. And what I want to tell you is about the weather and I'm still fighting a cold or my oven broke this week, all of which are Factors, I guess, but I really, this week, just wanted to watch a lot of Netflix. <laughs> hours and hours of it. And I did. <laughs> and there you have it. Now, you could probably look back on this last week and make a list of things in your life that you feel like you may have already failed at. Things that you might have entered into the year hoping for better, but it didn't come to pass. Maybe you got in a fight with one of your kids and you ended up saying something that you shouldn't have, something that's now out there that you can't take back, and there it is. Or a promise to do better with your money this year compared to last year, only to find yourself spending 60 bucks at Wings, etc. because of those little pretzel bites and beer cheese and Blue Moon and chicken wings are amazing. <laughs> Just me? I'm the only one? Okay. All right. This is awkward. 
Or maybe it was a commitment to stop drinking, only to have an extremely bad day at work. And you went home, and in your soda, you decided to put a little something, something with vodka in it and just get over the work meeting. Or maybe it was a relationship that you promised you're going to walk away from, but because it's so unhealthy, the next thing you know, you're rushing to their help because your codependent self doesn't know how to walk away. Or maybe this week you had to take out cash on your credit card because you lost so much money gambling already that you're just convinced it's about to turn around and in your favor, and you needed it to, or you're going to have to go home and tell your spouse why your entire paycheck was gone. And you could fill in the blank of whatever you want in terms of possible failings. And I know they range from the fairly minor to the pretty major life screw-ups with overwhelming consequences, and we all have them. And if it didn't happen for you last week, surely you can look back to the last year, and you'll see them there. At some point, you know what it's like to have fallen flat on your face. You have failed in life at some point, and probably one of the only points I can make that I don't really need to go on with a lot of illustrations, we all know it. We sin. Sin exists. It's perhaps the only theological point in Christianity that needs little defense or apology. We know it. And the fact that we sin and fall should not come as a shock to us, yet it seems that when it happens, it almost always does. It's almost like in the marriage that finally ends, like one of the spouses, they're always like, I didn't see it coming, even though there's tons of red flags and warnings and signs. Or anytime somebody's terminated from a job in spite of all the bad reviews and all the threats, if you do not, you will be fired. When they get terminated, it's like, I didn't even see that coming. It's like, well, there are lots of signs. I'm no longer shocked when I fall. I'm typically shocked at how easily I fall. I look back and I think, really? That's all it took? Because in my head, I like to think of myself as this well-disciplined, tough fighter persona that at the very least, if I'm going to go down, man, it's going to be a battle to go down. I mean, like a real slugfest that if you were to watch me in it, it, even though I fell, you would say, man, I know he fell, but he put up such a fight. Like, I'd almost be like a winner, even though I was a loser, right? That's what it looked like. And I've always wondered if that's how the apostle Peter felt the night that he betrayed Jesus. And there's a popular uh, genre of writing now in Christian bookstores. There are fictitious stories where the author will take a, a character in the Bible, but because the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot about their life, they'll write a whole novel, just imagining. Like, so they'll take the story of Ruth. You've know, got a couple chapters about the story of Ruth, but they'll write an entire novel of all of Ruth's thoughts and innermost reflections and how she related to her time and place and family and friends, and, and, and I get that. And so, or maybe Esther or maybe King David, and I, I understand why people write them, and I appreciate it because if I were to critique the Bible at all, and this seems awkward to even saying, it is that we don't get that in the Bible very often. The Bible is a selective book. And what I mean by that is it kind of gives us the highlights. It's the ESPN top 10 play versions. It's the cliff note versions of what's going on. Even the Gospel of John, the very last thing John will say in his Gospel, the very last verse kind of tells us this. He'll say in John 21 25, Jesus did many other things as well. In fact, if every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Slight exaggeration, but you hear what he's saying, right? Like, what I just said to you, like in this story that you just read, these 21 chapters, it's just a brief glimpse of the life of Jesus. He did so many other things that I just didn't write down. And that's the way the Bible kind of is. It's sort of like a, a snapshot. And the frustrating thing to me about this is we then don't have flushed out the complexity of thoughts and emotions of each character. The Bible is not a novel about the life of Peter. And if it, if it were, then I think we would know a whole lot more about Peter's thought processes 
as he betrayed Jesus. We know a lot more about his idiosyncrasies and his emotional baggage as it is. It's just kind of a quick Peter to this, then Peter to that, then this happened. So when Peter falls by betraying Jesus, I want to know what was going on in his mind when he did that. And then right after, what were the things that were going on in his head and his heart? Here's the story. It's out of Mark chapter 14, verse 66. It says this, While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself by the fire, she looked closely at him. And she says this, You also were that, with that Nazarene, Jesus, who had just been arrested, by the way, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them because you are a Galilean. He probably had an accent. He, he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Do you know why Peter fell? Why he betrayed Jesus? I don't know either. It doesn't say. I'm going to assume it was fear, but it doesn't say. And what will happen is Peter will get back up, and he will become a great leader in the church. You know how he does that? I don't know. It doesn't say. And what I'd love to know from the Scriptures is sort of what happened in that inner thought process of Peter as he went from what he was thinking when he betrayed Jesus to what happened afterwards. Because in my mind, like Peter's like this alpha male, like the strong one. He was one who was always sometimes bombastically promising to defend Jesus, even unto death. Like, Jesus will even say to him, you're going to betray me. And I don't know if you remember, but Peter responds in verse 31 of this chapter. He says, he insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I mean, you hear how bold that is? Just a few moments later, a little servant girl, I think you were with Jesus. No, I wasn't. Like, what happened? Like, in this time. It was Peter who insisted he would stop Jesus. There's a moment where Jesus warns his disciples, we're on our way to Jerusalem, and once I'm there, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests. They're going to crucify me. And Peter steps in, oh no, mm -mm, you are not going to die. And Jesus rebukes him, even calls him Satan, get behind me. It's kind of a dramatic scene. It's Peter who has the boldness to jump out of the boat in the middle of the lake and walk on water. It's Peter who's the first to say and confess, you are the Messiah. So I want to know if Peter ever thought to himself, in the moment of betraying Jesus, man, I didn't even put up a fight. Like, I just fell. And then I want to watch Peter wrestle with shame and regret and guilt and weakness and vulnerability, just like we do. Until the story he told himself in the end was finally the true and real story. Because I know I would try to spin a different one. At least instinctively. I, mean, I might eventually get to the truth, but instinctively, I would probably try to spin another one. I can't help but wonder, did he do that too? Like, I wonder if Peter thought to himself, well, what good is it really going to do for me, for anybody in this Jesus movement if I die now? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's best for the overall, for the long-term good if I stay alive. So it's, I'll just tell this little white light now. No, I don't know this man. So I can stay alive and I'll be able to help out the Jesus movement going forward. Did, did he say that to himself? Or did he justify it by saying, who does this servant girl think that she, who does she think she is? Asking me such personal questions. It is none of her business. It is none of their business. Who I am, whom I'm with. And so they don't deserve to like, it just, just, I don't even know this man. They didn't even feel bad about it because it's none of their business. He just kind of justified it like that. I don't know. He struggled with how easily he fell. Didn't really put up a fight. Because when I look back at how easily I fall, really, one moment of boredom, 
and you did that. One moment of resentment, and you so quickly did that. One moment of loneliness or anger or frustration or pride, and that's all it took. And that's my shock. Not that I fail or fall, but that I fail so easily. And it's going to be hard to spin the story to myself and others of how hard I fought to stay up because then at least you'd think, man, I'm sorry you lost, but you got nothing to be ashamed of. It's like a UFC fight, right? See, two guys have just a great fight, and even though one has to lose because it goes to the judge's decision, you're like, you got nothing to be ashamed of. Keep your head up high. You got nothing to be, you could be proud of. Like, that's the narrative I want to play in my head because the alternative would force me to have to step into my own shame and regret and guilt and vulnerability and weakness and admit how pathetic I really am or how lazy I can be or how weak my most noble impulses are. And if you listen to those words, just listen to these words. Shame, regret, guilt, vulnerability, weakness. These are not my power words for 2018. Like these are not the, put that on the refrigerator, encourage yourself with that for the rest of the year. These have with them connected emotions that are negative and and thoughts that are negative. And I don't do negative thoughts and emotions, at least not very well. In fact, I have a protective mechanism that kicks in to protect me from all icky and gross emotions and thoughts. In fact, we each have a built-in defensive mechanism that instinctively kicks in to action in the midst of our failings and falls. We have an instinctive response to unpleasant and negative emotions, which is what you experience when you've fallen down in life. And they are there to help you spin a story that doesn't hurt so bad, that tempers the pain, that keeps you from being overwhelmed in your own crap. Now, in extreme cases, these defensive mechanisms really can help. Child abuse, torture, extreme psychological and emotional distress, man, they help. They keep you alive. In the main, though, for most of us, they just help us spin a story that makes us feel better about ourselves. And the result is... We never know the truth about why we did what we did. Which means we are living a lie and are bound to repeat the same failing or worse. It gives us permission to blame everyone else or everything else and absolve ourselves of any real necessary work or culpability. It allows our ego to keep up a facade that we really are good and have it all together. I mean, did you know that most serial killers see themselves as good people? They just have an issue? They don't think, I'm I'm evil. Like, they think they're actually a pretty good person. They just have a problem that they need to deal with. And we learn these defensive mechanisms at a very early age. Like, at a very early age, you learn how to protect yourself from those... Take a a look at this. Let me show you. Okay, so, Sophie, you just painted your Barbie with nail polish, right? Yes, she told me to. She told you to do it. So, when Barbie was laying there, Barbie said... I'm going to go ahead and just lay here and you can play with me. And then all of a sudden Barbie said, okay, can you paint me with nail polish? And she said this a hundred times and I be saying no. So you were saying no, you shouldn't put nail polish on Barbie. And she kept saying over and over again a hundred times. She kept saying, please paint me with nail polish. She said that a hundred times. A hundred times. And then when she was uh, all painted blue, did you think that you should have stopped painting her with nail polish in your room on the carpet? I tried to get off, but it was thinking, ah, no, I couldn't get it off. So you tried to get it off, but you couldn't? No, it's too hot. Now, where are you allowed to use your nail polish? Oh, 
outside, but when you painted inside, why did you do that? She told me to. She told you to? Yes. Okay, do you, does Barbie know that she could have ruined your carpet and your bed and all of your blankets? Yes, she told me to. I said it was all off when she didn't listen to me. So you told her it was a horrible idea? And, and she said a hundred times all the time. All right. All Barbie say, be, keep saying that. Oh my goodness. So, who should get in trouble? Should Barbie get in trouble or should Sophia get in trouble for using the nail polish in the house? Oh, my doctor say they want me to paint on the nails. Okay, but should you get in trouble or should your Barbies get in trouble? Me, but... All the sympathy in this room is just amazing. Starts at an early age, doesn't it? Now, as a side note, uh, she's either really hearing voices and her parents need to get her help, or... <laughs> and this goes way back, doesn't it? Like this defensive mechanism where it's not really me, it's other people. This goes, this goes back to the original story in the Bible in the fall. Like, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, it's in Genesis 3, verse 8. Listen to what it says. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Now that's important. We'll come back to that. And he said, this is God, who told you you were naked? Because <laughs> at this point, they weren't supposed to realize they were naked. And at that moment, God knew, have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See what's happening here? Who told you you were naked? And immediately Adam knew, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I just got caught. I just admitted to God that I was naked and I wasn't supposed to know I'm naked, but I do because I ate that fruit. And now Adam's got shame and guilt and regret and weakness, and vulnerability, and especially fear. So Adam's defensive mechanism is going to kick in to spin a story, a story that's going to help his ego, and it's a classic one. It's displacement. Adam really isn't to blame. Who's to blame? Eve is to blame. She gave me the fruit. It's her fault. I didn't even know what it was. I was hungry. I thought she was bringing me lunch, so I took a bite, and wow, to my surprise, I'm naked. I had no idea. It was from the tree you told me not to eat of. Can you believe she would do that to me? I mean, come on. Isn't that crazy? What kind of a helpmate would do that for the nerve? But Adam really takes it even a step further. He doesn't just blame his wife, Eve. Remember what he says? He says, the woman you put here with me. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, really, God, when you think about it, this is kind of your fault. I mean, I was just fine. It was just me and my dog in the garden, and you had to send me a woman. So when you really push this all the way back and think about it, it's really kind of your fault that this happened. And then Eve, of course, her defensive mechanisms kick in. It was a serpent. He, he deceived me. He, what that means is he tricked me. What that means is it wasn't like a calculated thing that she did. It wasn't like she thought to herself or was convinced that she didn't like the inequitable power between her and God, that he would hold something out on her, that she wanted the fruit to experience equality with God, and why should 
he'd be calling all the shots around here. Why should she be the only one who doesn't know good and evil? So it was the serpent. Listen, we all have them. And for many of us, they are our most instinctive reflex in the midst of our failing and our fall. In fact, let me give you eight common and most powerful defensive mechanisms that exist. One is denial. And this is rather than face the truth of your life and reality, you just simply deny it at every point. And it comes out uh, subtly. Like everyone around you knows, but you keep saying, I don't have a problem. I'm just a social drinker. I can stop whenever I want to. Or everyone does this on company time. Or every guy thinks like this and acts like this. And denial is a defensive mechanism that keeps us from experiencing the negative emotions of a fall by simply declaring, I have not fallen. And you would think, oh, come on, surely you would know that you've failed. And the answer is no. A very powerful defensive mechanism kicks in that convinces us that we're still standing. And we've lied to ourselves about the reality that we're actually face down on the ground. The second is repression. And it isn't as common. It's a fine line between denial and repression. But where denial involves the outright refusal to accept a given reality, repression involves completely forgetting the experience altogether. With repression, your mind takes the decision to, makes the decision to bury the memory in the subconscious, thereby preventing painful, disturbing, or dangerous thoughts from entering awareness. In fact, this is most often the case. You'll see this with child abuse or other traumatic experiences that occurred early in development. And so um, there's no real memory of it until later they go into therapy and all of a sudden they begin to realize, oh my goodness, this is what really happened in my life. While repression, much like denial, may serve immediate purposes, particularly if you were tormented by a painful experience, if you do not eventually process and deal with the experience, it will have severe consequences later on. And what happens typically is in relationship, when somebody is repressing, like just those negative things, the other person just think they're, thinks they're crazy. Like, am I the only one that, like, I think that really did happen. The third one is displacement. This is a very common one. Displacement looks like this. I don't know if you've ever, you ever had an argument with your boss at work, but you couldn't really take it out on him or her. So when you got home, what'd you do? You took it out on your spouse or your kids, and you were mean to them. Or you got in a fight with your spouse one day, and rather than taking it out on them right away, you just got in your car, you were going to go somewhere and take a drive, and you found yourself flipping off every car in your way. Like, what happened? Like, it wasn't really about them. It was what you got in the car with. It was that negative emotional energy that you had going on. And while displacement, you, you transfer your emotion from the person who is the target of your frustration to someone or something else entirely. Because maybe subconsciously you believe that to confront the source of your feelings may be too dangerous or risky, so you shift the focus towards a target or situation that's less intimidating or dangerous. Now, while displacement may protect you from losing your job or burning a bridge or saying or doing something that could do irreparable damage, it will not help you handle that emotions you're experiencing and you'll end up hurting someone completely innocent. The fourth is projection. And this also happens often. Um, I don't know if you might have experienced this. You ever have a moment where you feel insecure about how you look? Maybe it's an outfit you put on and you feel insecure about it. Or maybe it's a hairstyle that you're just... So what projection does is as you're processing those negative emotions, what happens is you just notice everybody in the room, like, they're talking about you. See those two people right now, they're whispering. You know what they're talking about? I bet they're saying, I can't believe she'd wear that out. Now, the truth is, they're not saying anything about you. They're not even thinking about you. But because of projection, because of what's already going on in your insecurity, what you're doing is, rather than you having to deal with the negative emotion you have, you project it on somebody else. And so now they're just big, fat jerks. And it's not you who has the insecurity that you've got to deal with. And sometimes it might even reflexively come out like, what are you looking at? Like, who are, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? 
And most of us have found ourselves in a situation in which we project our feelings or shortcomings or unacceptable impulses onto others. And the reason we do so is because to recognize that particular quality in ourselves would cause us too much pain and suffering. So we say things like, I didn't get invited to the party because, and the reason why happens to be the very thing that you're insecure about, but it isn't you saying it, they're saying it, which puts it on them. The fifth one is reaction, formation. I don't know how common it is, but it does exist, and maybe you've seen it in yourself. Instead of just denying something, you're actually going to go into the opposite direction on how you really feel and how you really think in a dramatic, blatant way. And the best way I can think about this is in the church world. Like with, if you ever hear a pastor preach, and it feels like he's always talking about uh, people who are gay, like as a sin, like just, just he's always railing against it, it's a theme that keeps coming back up again, all the, all the, it feels like this feels out of proportion to the Bible in any particular way. You know what I think in those moments? You know what I think that, about that pastor? I think he's gay. Seriously. Because he protests too much. And what it is, it's actually called reaction formation is what it is. It's, it's an example where instead of using conflict, it's, it's that idea that uh, you're projecting that reaction in the opposite direction. That's what that does. Number six is regression. <laughs> this is common. In times of stress, you may find that your behavior becomes more childish or immature. This is known as regression. With regression, you revert back to an earlier level of development and, uh, or less demanding behaviors as a way of protecting yourself from having to actually confront the situation. So imagine you're having an argument with your spouse, and instead of using healthy conflict resolution tools, you just stomp off or you slam a door, or you throw a remote, or you give your partner the cold shoulder, or if you're in a conflict with a coworker or your spouse, and you end it with, well, you're just a big poopy head, that's a sign <laughs> that you have regressed. Number seven, rationalization. I'm good at this one. In the simplest of terms, rationalization is when you explain away your bad behavior. Always, you always have an explanation. It's always a rationalization for why you did that. And I was gonna, I got another video I was going to show you because of time I, I won't. But have you seen the little boy who's arguing with his mom about the cupcakes? He's not allowed to get cupcakes. And so it's like, Linda, honey, honey, Linda. You see that one? Isn't that fantastic? That kid is going to be a lawyer and he's going to be amazing. Like he has a rationalization for his behavior at every point. In his most extreme cases, this is what abusers use to explain their abuse. You made me do this. Well, I had to steal from the company because they didn't pay us what they owed us at the renewal of our last contract, or I had to have the affair because I was being denied at home. There's always a rationalization, and typically someone else is to blame. And the last one, eighth here, and this is a sneaky one. It's called sublimation. Let me tell you why it's sneaky. Sublimation occurs when you transform your conflicted emotion and unmet desires or unacceptable impulses into productive outlets. That's the problem. They actually are productive outlets, and because of that, it can be very sneaky. This is the situation where when you have a very stressful day at work, you just go on a long run to cool down. Or when you get a fight with your spouse, that's when you go write music. Or when there's a lot of tension in the home, you tend to spend a lot of time and energy in that project at work. Now, at the face value, that looks productive, right? Writing music and going exercising and, and working hard at the project at work. But now, what I'd say is for a situation that you really have no control in, that might be your best option. But this is also a technique that could be used in defensive mechanism where instead of having to deal with the issue, you're choosing other things. And that's what you're always going to. And in the end, it will have negative repercussions. Now, at the end of these, if you're thinking, if you just now identified your spouse and half your coworkers' defensive mechanisms but not your own... <laughs> You just heard that wrong. Like, you should be able to say, like, out of these, you should go, 
oh, I think I do that. Like, I, I think I have moments. And I'm not saying that we will ever get rid of our tendencies to move towards a defensive mechanism. What I'm saying is, it doesn't have to have the last word. If we allow it to be our definitive word, you will never rise strong after a fall. You will never come to grips with your true self and what you're really like. You will never discover the root cause of your failing and your fall. And when you ask an exasperation of yourself, why are you like this? You'll never have an accurate answer. Your emotional processes will be blunted and you'll become a victim to your own BS. I asked my wife if I could say the real word. She said no. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying, right? You hear, right? The worst thing that can befall you in a fall is to buy your own BS. You are going to fall. This is the truth. And when you are laying on the ground in the arena of life after a fall, you are going to have a hundred different options. But most of those options will not help you get up. And they will do nothing to make you stronger. They will do nothing that will allow you to rise strong. You'll tell yourself a story. It will be a narrative of why this happened and what you should do about it. And that story can either be a complete fabrication and a lie full of spin and exaggeration, or it can be the truth. The truth of this is why this is really happening. A moment where you have the clarity to see that you are really just hustling yourself and everyone around you. A moment that you get to step into reality, what truly is, instead of the pretend world that you've created. A moment where instead of hiding, the authentic and vulnerable you shows up. But I have to say this out loud. I would be lying if I didn't tell you the truth will hurt. That's why you keep pretending, or hiding, or hustling. <laughs> it, was not, it was not to hear the truth, because that truth will sting. It will be painful. It will call something from you. It will force you to have to step into shame, regret, guilt, vulnerability, fear, and weakness. But the only ones who rise strong out of their failings, have walked through this journey. And there are no shortcuts. I know our hustling selves are still trying to find one, but it only leads you to more hustling and greater depths of being lost. This journey will only be for the strong, for those who rely on the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the mercy of Jesus to believe, as he said in John 8, 32, then you will know the truth. And that truth will set you free. And as we enter into a new year, I, I know really as you're dealing with what do I do after my fall, after, I've, after my failing, the best place to be is in the midst of a community that loves you, that's absolutely non-judgmental, that has experienced what you've experienced, and they have great BS detectors. And if I might suggest and recommend, just for your consideration, if you are at a place in life where you're thinking, I need to come to grips with what's going on, really going on in my life with some of my falls and, and failings that I keep falling and failing. Um, on Monday evenings at 7 o'clock, we offer here, in this room, Celebrate Recovery is the name of it, and it is a great place with people who will love you, be absolutely non-judgmental and accepting, and, and walk with you through all of that, and they have great BS detectors. And so they're about to start a new session in a couple of weeks. And so just kind of let that mull over your mind as you think through the possibilities of what that might look like for you in the coming year. But 
this is where we'll pick up next week. So I, we leave like, I'm a little discouraged. Like, okay, look, come back next week. We're face down. We fell. Maybe it was a 2018 resolution. Maybe it was our sobriety. Maybe it was our marriage. Now what? What do I do to not fall victim to my own BS? I'm not going to be a slave to my own self-spin, but rather I am going to get back up. And what I do, it's not just to stumble forward, but to rise strong. This is what we pray. Amen? Let's pray that. God, we, we come to you right now and ask that this would be a year where we rise strong. That whatever it is that we have fallen or whatever area or arena of our life that we've failed, as we find ourselves face down, we pray now is the time that we'll only hear the truth. And even if that truth hurts or stings, I ask that you give us the courage and by the power of your spirit, the ability to hear in such a way that when we stand back up, we'll do so to rise strong. And so I ask, Father, that you would bless us as we journey forward, that we do so well as we follow your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.